don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the architect's expertise in a judiciary complex with Nina Valeri Kolobratnik. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Nina Valeri Kolobratnik, uh, who is an um, Austrian architect here in New York, and she's a, a relatively recent uh, graduate from the, this uh, program at uh, the Columbia School of Architecture that's called the Critical Curatorial and Conceptual Practice in Architecture, uh, also called CCCP. <laughs> Uh, and uh, she's um, she's a co-editor of the book uh, Waking Up from the Nightmare of Participation uh, with uh, Marcus Mason. Um, well, hey, hello, Nina. Hi. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, for people who listen to this podcast every now and then, they know that usually my first question is to ask about uh, what those people are doing, uh, what my guests are doing uh, uh, in in the recent weeks and months but actually uh, uh, for today's conversation we'll finish by that because it's actually very interesting and we'll we'll spend the time to to describe it to describe it so uh, so we're gonna we're gonna jump right uh, right into the the topic of today which is uh, talking about their architectural expertise I mean the expertise of the architect uh, within a, a judiciary context um, and uh, we're gonna talk about uh, we're going to talk about this topic with a specific uh, examples that you've been working on uh, uh, first within an academic uh, context and then within a, a more professional context. But I mean, you'll describe that for us. Um, uh, well, I, actually, I, w- I will. I will not even talk about it. But would you like to maybe introduce introduce a specific case to us, please? Sure. Um... I mean, maybe I'll start a little bit, like to give you a larger framework. So, sure, um, sounds great. So, I guess the larger project I've been working on for the past couple um, of years um, is concerned with the question on how an architectural visual language pe- can become an operative asset um, in the social political field, uh, and specifically when one is approaching a situation from the outside, um, stepping into another disciplinary framework which means that uh, when you're stepping in another disciplinary framework, that also your audience um, becomes a non-professional one or, uh, let's say, an audience unschooled um, in architectural representation. Mm. And so I've been asking, in a way, um, whether an architectural notational system can become productive by reading a situation of conflict from a spatial and outside point of view while operating as a communication tool. And so the commentation tool is quite important to me because, um, in my opinion, the tools of engagement for a spatial practitioner um, working as a kind of destabilizer in a way for existing power relations and sets of belief in order to to open up spaces for change this so a destabilizer, yeah. not a stabilizer. Okay, So, so actually, these tools of engagement for the special practitioners 
are not necessarily located within the built realm of architecture, I mm -hmm. think. But they operate, um, at least for me, oh, it's interesting to think about that they can operate in the, f in the field of communication. Also recently I've been uh, very much interested in the question of uh, the architectural expertise uh, and how this might be defined and framed um, when working within other disciplines, specifically um, in, in the legal framework, I guess. I see. So uh, the, the, the way I've been myself approaching the, the example we're going to talk about today is through the, the last issue of uh, volumes, this, uh, this um, uh, uh, architectural uh, journals that just had an issue about um, legal theory and architecture that I highly recommend. It's very, very interesting. And you have in it you have a text called uh, The Language of Secret Proof, which is the same, uh, the same title than your, your broader research. I mean, the, I suppose the volume text is, a very, is, is, is great to work as a synthesis, but there's obviously a much, more, a much deeper uh, work behind that. So uh, can you tell us what, what the language of the secret proof, uh, the language, I'm sorry, the language of secret proof uh, is, um, is researching about? Yeah, so um, it has been um, a research project um, which I've been working on for um, almost a year and um, an academic research project. And it's located um, within the Native American uh, Hemis Pueblo land claim and its evidentiary dilemmas, let's say. So, um, in a nutshell, maybe I start with saying that um, while, the, while the proof of connection to the land must be uh, established to satisfy the claim, um, the reasons the Pueblo declare, declares right to ownership are anchored in the tribe's um, spiritual um, and religious systems of significance, which means um, that these reasons are secret, um, are regarded uh, to be secret for them, creating, of course, a huge problem for evidentiary production. And so I was, uh, what I was trying to do is to work through this double bind by means of uh, architectural notation. And... Adeva tried to um, negotiate the demands of exposure and concealment. I tried to instigate a discussion um, within uh, the Pueblo, but also within uh, the different uh, uh, lawyers uh, involved. Um, and I tried, in a way, to deconstruct the fixed opposition between secrecy and disclosure, or mm. secrecy and evidentiary, Western evidentiary production. I see. Um, maybe, maybe if I try to sum up what you're what you're dealing with here is that, uh, if I understood correctly, in summer 2012 there's been a, a lawsuit that's been filed in view of the ownership of the land that, uh, obviously, in a country like the United States or in Canada, are highly problematic based on their uh, original native uh, population, uh, and so. Um, from what you told me when we prepared the conversation, the, the, um, the land right now belongs to the federal government of the United States, but is, um, is, uh, it, it is um, organized by the, the Valles Caldera National Preserve. And, right. and you'll stop, you'll stop <laughs> me if, if I say something wrong, obviously. But, and, um, 
and so the lawsuit is about is about this uh, this uh, Native American tribe, the uh, Pueblo, Pueblo Hemes, that uh, is trying to get the ownership to 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 have the ownership of the land in court. Right. However, the dilemma that you were just referring to is that they uh, have in their most sacred principles not to represent their land in any way, which creates a very difficult uh, uh, situation where they cannot produce any proof that would that would show that they're uh, yeah. I mean, what are we talking about? That they, for example, they they. Like the activities that they have on the on the on the land and uh, yeah. yeah so um, right I mean so it's it's like this lawsuit has been filed in 2012 by the Hemes Pueblo and its its uh, legal representatives and um, probably one has to say that um, it's kind of a special case because. Um, it has just been recently bought by the federal government in 2010 um, by the last uh, private owner. And it, it was um, given as a land grant in the 1800s um, to uh, a Spanish uh, landlord. And since then, it has been in private ownership. Um, but ne never private ownership by any Native American. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. And before the 1800s, it was part, I mean, it was part of this ancestral homeland of this tribe. And uh, several, um, like around 60 large uh, village ruins in within this uh, western ancestral homeland, um, proof that, and also there are about hundreds of field houses. Um, so it's in New Mexico. It is right? yes, yeah. in New Mexico, um, a little bit uh, north of, of Albuquerque, so between I guess Albuquerque and Santa Fe, okay. um, and. So we are talking about um, this ancestral homeland is uh, an area of uh, 640,000 acres and today's Pueblo's land base only consists of 90,000 acres um, uh, of tribal trust lands and they are divided in three non-continuous parcels so it's quite a difference. And um, so what they are reclaiming is part of this western ancestral homeland um, another uh, like uh, about 90,000 acres um, of uh, which is this Valles Caldera National Preserve today and they are reclaiming it because um, on um, one mountain within the Valles Caldera um, there is the most sacred shrine the mountain is called Vavema Mountain um, and also there are several other traditional sites where um, Hemes Pueblo uh, members need to regularly go um, to maintain their um, tribal uh, spiritual order. Um, so in 2012 the, um, the, the Pueblo um, kind of was prompted or I guess the Pueblo was prompted to um, to file a claim to quiet title, to Aboriginal Indian title. That's the correct expression, mm -hmm. um, I was told. Um, which is trying to use the Federal Quiet Title Act waiver of sovereign immunity of the rest from suit. Um, and for that, um, 
especially also, uh, I guess, specifically in, in uh, claims for Aboriginal Indian title, uh, the onus of proof is directed to the native plaintiff, mm. meaning that they are required to prove um, Aboriginal title, um, which means that uh, they have to prove actual, continuous and exclusive use um, and o- occupancy of this claimed land for a long time. Um, so the reason why um, they use it is uh, in a religious nature, right? Um, and as the um, tribal rituals um, are um, secret, um, it is difficult for them to um, to create uh, evidence specifically in a Western way, mm-hmm. right? Because... Um, The Western legal judicial system accepts um, as reliable evidence mostly um, scientific facts, um, which in indigenous title cases means archaeological, uh, ethnographic and geospatial data and maps that pinpoint specific um, spatial locations of spiritual sites uh, with detailed descriptions of the ritual uh, doings and times of their performances. Um, so also spaces and territorial boundaries um, would thereby um, if we go with these western evidentiary rules um, they would have to be mapped as understood by western culture which um, can be quite different than the narrated and perceived lived um, experiences of territorial boundaries from Native Americans um, Yes. So maybe is it uh, interesting to hear a little bit more about the secrecy? Um, yes, to understand sure. it a little bit more why, why and what is secret? Sure, then? absolutely. Please go ahead. So um, we might start saying that it is commonly believed that um, the, the Pueblo... Um, Secrecy is a defensive tactic, right, towards the the Western outsider um, that uh, kind of um, interfered in the free exercise of their cultural traditions in the past. And um, however, it is in fact um, more, much more complicated. <laughs> there's there's something quite. <laughs> Uh, pathological in in Western wanting to associate any reasons happening to, back to them. It's like it's bec- right. it's because of us that you have secrecy. It's like no, right. maybe he has nothing to do with you. Right, <laughs> and actually also it's quite interesting because many of um, so many of um, uh, the legal representatives of uh, such Native American claims um, can argue now. Okay, well, I mean our um, society has evolved. You, we don't threaten anymore um, your native culture. That's why why you actually can um, can expose and can um, open your culture to us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, this is um, contradicted by the fact that um, actually um, secrecy plays in in the Pueblo culture plays a key role in structuring the Pueblo's internal religious social. Um, and political system, meaning that, um, first of all, 
a knowledge of the ritual and spiritual world represents um, the source of power um, that facilitates control over the universe forces for um, New Mexican uh, pueblos. Um, that's why when this knowledge, or they maintain that when this kind of knowledge is used irresponsibly um, and by people that are not initiated to its uses, this knowledge um, is lost and even can um, turn dangerous and kind of come back to them in, in, a, in a bad way. And so, as I mentioned earlier, um, this a specific knowledge structure uh, and this structure of um, of um, knowledge, um, like how how knowledge is transferred, is is really linked to the internal system of the pueblo, the re the religious, social, and political system, because um, the access to the secret knowledge is prescribed um, by the social status of a person in the pueblo, and you can only get a high social status. Um, or um, also some kind of eligibility to political um, to political participation within the tribe uh, when you have certain um, degrees of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So um, the religious hierarchy and and uh, which um, includes a high degree of knowledge and the social uh, social and political um, status. Are interlinked. Mm -hmm. um, thus, breaking this um, um, these structures would not only mean that um, their knowledge could uh, return to them in a bad way, as they maintain, but also it would disrupt their um, their social structure. Um, right. So the, the dilemma that you're describing, um, you're also putting it in within a, a, a context of uh, maybe a legal theory or a political philosophy, uh, in where in where there's a kind of a shift of status within within the the, the judiciary con context, and uh, and you say in the in the article I was referring I was referring to. Earlier, you were quoting Jean-François Lyotard in Le Différence that says that there, to explain that the in a sudden the, the plaintiff, and I quote, the plaintiff becomes a victim when he's divested of the means to argue. So could you maybe tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. I guess in this case, um, one could say that the criteria of proof upheld by the US courts betrays the essence of what needs to be proven. So the plaintiff, which is... Um, the Native American tribe becomes a victim uh, because he um, cannot um, argue uh, in the way um, he is supposed to in, in front of Western courts. Um, so the way that Lyotard um, describes um, the different um, is as a case of conflict between two parties that cannot be um, equitably resolved for the lack um, of a rule of judgment applicable to both arguments. Um, and so that means that once one side's uh, legitimacy does not imply the other's lack of legitimacy. And um, 
And when one would apply a single rule of judgment, the Western, for example, um, just in order to settle the different, um, it it would always be um, wrong, at least for one of them. Um, also, in a way, it presents kind of a um, a difficulty of of um, of language that um, that one can simply not put um, into phrases one what one is supposed um, to say, um, and um, I guess at, at that point we should also shortly talk about um, the other issue, which where um, um, evidently a production becomes difficult in this point, which is that um, that there occurs or there has to occur um, a change in in um, medium of knowledge transmission, meaning that. Um, the production of evidentiary documents in Native American claims like implies that um, a material reproduction of otherwise um, intangible cultural knowledge needs to occur. The, the knowledge transmission um, traditionally in Native American um, pueblos is oral, so they have a strong oral tradition. And this also is interlinked with the secrecy cult, of course, mm-hmm. um, because um, you can, if 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 knowledge is purely oral, you can much more easily control it to escape the boundaries of the pueblo, because it is linked to one specific person, and it needs kind of a, a social interaction with another person in order to um, transmit that knowledge. So one, once it is um, written down pictures already recorded, it can escape um, these boundaries um, much easier. Um, mm. And it's much more difficult to um, control it. Um, so when when trying to... Um, when I was trying to work through this double bind, um, trying to translate between these two different modes of representation, I had to take into account that um, that this knowledge was not yet um, materialized before, mm-hmm. how to do that, um, and that there are certain rules um, of cultural representation, which um, and also of information storage, which apply equally for cultural insiders and outsiders. And I mean, another interesting point is too that. Um, Secrecy is um, categorized in a way um, by the pueblos um, through through the way um, it is transmitted um, or through the medium of transmission. So the highest um, category of knowledge cannot be spoken out at all. Um, um, it needs to. Um, there are certain rituals where the person receives it in an unspoken way. Um, and then the lower the knowledge gets, the more um, the more you can... I mean, uh, one uh, example is that you would only uh, learn by seeing, by seeing the dances, for example, the ritual dances, or that you would um, learn by specific people that tell you in... A, 
in a specific uh, form like a chant what to do so um, yeah this this became also quite interesting moments for me when when thinking about how how to possibly um, well, create this evidence I, I, I think I think it's it's fascinating to observe how how there, there seems to be a, uh, an absolute conflict between their their uh, this uh, transmission of knowledge and uh, and their what what would what would be thought as a proof uh, within their uh, Native American uh, context versus their versus uh, the system of the the, the U.S. courts courts and it, it kind of reminds me of uh, something I was talking about with uh, with uh, Raja Shehade in four years ago when I interviewed him in uh, in Ramallah. Uh, so Raja is a is a Palestinian lawyer who's um, for the last uh, for the last thirty years, I've been working on case of uh, of uh, land, land Palestinian land expro- expropriation by the Israeli army, uh, um, according to uh, 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 claims that are that are actually very interesting to show how uh, uh, the law could be used as a as a uh, colonial weapon as well. But I mean we're would bring us too far to talk about it right now, but I, w- I was asking him um, something that I, I think uh, other people have asked you, which is why do you why are you trying to make a case in his case in uh, in the Israeli Supreme Court, which is which is the the legal institution of the same uh, the same. Uh, 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 the same nations and the the occupiers and the army the armies that are that are doing this expropriation. In his case, what he answered, and I'm paraphrasing him. I I hope he he won't mind me doing so. But uh, he he was saying that you need to make your case at the Israeli Supreme Court because you need to say that you tried everything. And after that, there's another uh, set of legitimacy that that kind of comes in. But uh, what about in your case? What I, I know that people ask you these questions. Why? Why do you? Why do you go? Why do you try to to produce proofs that would work within within this dilemma uh, uh, of the the impossibility to produce proof versus the absolute need to claim to claim a land? And wh- why? Why isn't isn't it giving giving a legitimacy to the to the U.S. Uh, legislation to to go? Make a case there. Well, why was there an urgency for you? An urgency for you? Yeah, I think yeah, that's obviously a really good question. <laughs> and um, I must say, I have been thinking about it a lot um, after um, I, I stopped working so fanatically on the case, actually. Um, but when I was starting, um, I had this. Um, there was this immediate urgency to to the case um, which um, is uh, not only specific to this uh, Hemes Pueblo land claim but in general um, the general movement or the general movements by uh, many lawyers that represent um, Native American uh, tribes is to um, to uh, ask them to disclose their traditional practices as they see it as the only viable way. 
um, to win a land claim. And so, so it's basically in the dilemma that they're facing is just going for one of the two options, basically. Right. Okay. Right. And and as as of course this is already to make like to make this first step to go to the courts and is a huge step. And then, um, then like in having in in the back of your mind that the larger goal is to regain the the ancestral homeland, and not maybe to complicate an already really long uh, and difficult endeavor, um, many Pueblo members decide to, to yield, to, to give in. Um, and To give in the evidence or to give in the, to the give trial in, together, the lawsuit all together? No, to give in the, the, the I guess, their lawyers' um, demands okay. to, to, to So disclose. to produce evidence that are con- in contradiction of their own, exactly. of their own principle. Okay. And um, so, however, I've, what I found out in my first interviews, it was that um, several, um, several religious society groups within within the tribe I, I was um, interviewing I was interviewing more tribes but um, they were actually um, opposing um, their request and they didn't want to document their activities mm-hmm. um, with the legal group um, which kind of um, when I was uh, uh, researching more on it it, it uh, came to light that Actually, many pueblos um, are struggling with um, with serious internal debates um, because um, of evidentiary production. Um, because, of course, I mean, why should there be a unity like uh, in, in that society? Mm-hmm. Whereas <laughs> there is no in in a Western. Mm. No, but uh, so there is um, obviously there there are some um, some more traditional uh, groups that are religious society groups uh, and also with, within those there are um, kind of um, different opinions but there are like um, some that um, that resist and, and don't want to, to uh, lay open their knowledge and others um, which do so um, to to um, kind of um, make them choose or make them have this debate within um, within a, within the tribe is, is highly problematic mm-hmm. um, and in, in this uh, specific case of the Hamas Pueblo it was um, like this that um, when I um, started to, to become interested in this case that the legal group just had started to work, but then had to stop due to um, issues of, of, of funding for for a couple of months um, before they would actually then start again doing uh, doing their documentation. And so I saw this is a is a good like you know as a really kind of um, um, as an urgent. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Alternative. Yeah. No. It's yeah. It's, it's um, like the right moment, I guess, to intervene. I see. Yeah. Um, so I could uh, maybe introduce some of of these alternative um, 
evidentiary production methods mm. um, while they were not actively working and then uh, yeah and and to be to be uh, uh, precise about what happened in your specific case you started this as a as a um, as an academic uh, project but then you were specifically asked uh, by the tribe to be this architectural experts that we're talking about uh, and I mean for this reason there's many things that you cannot talk about obviously but, uh, uh, but right. basically uh, based based on this based on the fact that at some point you were indeed uh, an architectural expert within a judicial uh, uh, context uh, and not even about anything that is uh, that you would think that would be commonly called architecture, right? Because it says right. no, there's no building, so to speak. But how how did that affect your thinking in terms of what what is precisely this this uh, architectural expertise within this context? Right. Um, so it's true. I have been um, asked to work as an um, architectural consultant after. I finished my academic work, which was um, which was in the realm of the CCCP program at Columbia University. So after graduation, I had I've been asked to enter to become part of the legal group, um, which was really interesting and challenging for me um, to actually translate it into practice and see what kind of uh, actual um, <laughs> difficulties that would pop up. Uh, and how to argue my expertise. I was the only architect working in that group at that time. Um, how to to first convince my my colleagues about uh, my specific expertise for that project, where where there were no buildings involved, and also then how to how to find an explanation for the ones that would approve it in court. My expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, so. They obviously asked me because they had seen my um, my work I've done in academia, um, and my approach was that um, I guess I, I develop I tried to develop a mode of translation through um, architectural notation, and um, I so I combined strategies of spatial representation and encryption. And distortion, and it was specific to each drawing that I worked on. So, um, so I tried to produce visual documentation of the Hemis Pueblo's traditional and ritual use of the Vizcalero, which was that that what was requested by the courts, which was like documentation that was measurable and verifiable. Um, yet inconclusive in that um, it would not represent the totality of of the Hemet tribes' activities. Um, and also, importantly, it would not serve as a guide to reenact them. So people couldn't use it as a as a map to, for example, walk the ceremonial trail that I was documenting mm-hmm. again and to find the actual uh, shrines uh, and, and places of... Um, of prayer. Mm. So th- those drawings carry this contradiction between the decryptability of, of information that needs to be 
accepted as proof within a judicial context and the encryptability of the information that actually uh, are vital to be to remain secret for the tribe is that correct that is correct mm -hmm. yeah yeah so right so i had of course as an architect i had the surplus let's say to um be able to negotiate um within um within a transparent and object uh, framework or at least that is what architecture is supposed to work in and i kind of played also with uh, architecture's claims to ob objectivity and and facticity and descriptive clarity or what is assumed about uh, about architecture's conventions of, of drawing in order to construct truth value um, and um, I also think that I had to be able to um, understand and negotiate um, this, this registers of language that are encoded with power and secrecy. So in a way, it was like to understand um, if I would have if, if, if I would understand the coding of secrecy, which is um, a combination of, of knowledge and, and power and, and power of who has the power to transmit it and to, to own it. Um, so to understand the coding of secrecy at the same time also means to, um, in a way, understand the coding of evidence, mm -hmm. which is also a combination of, of power and knowledge, right? And maybe also the whole case. Um, so in this way, I guess, architectural expertise embodies less actual truth claims. But what I saw myself as was as a kind of translator um, between two different structures of representation. Mm -hmm. It was more a rhetorical man management of truth and secrecy. That makes sense, and um, yeah. So, as soon as I could see, I guess, the coding of secrecy objectively, if I would have, in a way, decoded the rules of secrecy, and was able to um, play within these rules um, through spatial um, representation techniques. Um, I was, I thought I, that could be a way to um, to speak secret proof in the US courts, a way as, as way of spatial encryption, mm -hmm. uh, re, in a, a way of re-encryption. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I, I actually uh, uh, took a quote from, from this article uh, that you wrote, um, and I'm, I'm going to read it here, so maybe it can it can help to to conclude this part of the conversation. Um, uh, you you ask the question: Can architectural tools produce a notation, notational system that negotiates the demands of exposure and concealment, and that not merely translates between ritual and courtroom, but from a culture of secrecy to one of transparency? Right. Hmm. 
Yeah, I guess that's a, a good summary of that it. Sums it up. <laughs> uh, and and I want to mention to the listeners that there is a very interesting work that is being done uh, uh, recently uh, uh, um, in this um, uh, for to to question this this exact uh, problem, which is what is the the, the architectural expertise uh, within a judiciary context. Uh, and that's a group we're not, uh, neither of us are associated with, but uh, it's called Forensic Architecture and it's directed by uh, E.L. Weisman at uh, Goldsmiths uh, College in London. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a, um, uh, a collection of projects uh, that are uh, actually uh, uh, acting within, within this judiciary context and... and, uh, and um, they, they actually have an exhibition right now in Berlin, and I think you you, you saw it. So would, right, would you like maybe just to describe it, just what you saw <laughs> uh, as a few project? I mean, it's it's it's. I I, I really encourage everyone to go see the, their website with uh, each specific case uh, explained and uh, and, and uh, with very very similar questions that the one we we've been raising today. Right. So it's it's the exhibition called Forensis at the Haus der Kultur und der Welt, um, short um, HKW, um, in Berlin. Um, I think it has opened until May, probably. And um, yeah, it, it was fascinating to see what um, this group uh, of, of, of students and researchers within this forensic architecture group did within the last three years. Mm. Um, there's a myriad of projects uh, all dealing with um, human rights violations in uh, in having some kind of spatial component um, and each of, of the members of, of these exhibitions and of the um, contributors um, I guess responded differently as not all of them were architects but many of them Using um, different spatial, spatial and technical ways um, of reconstructing um, maybe the, the happenings or mm. um, yeah, creating evidence. Um, so I, I um, creating it. Uh, uh, I mean, it, some describing describing evidence through architectural. Uh, Drawings, documents, documents and, yeah. or uh, investigations. Yeah, and I, I guess looking through it, uh, looking at it uh, through a spatial lens, mm -hmm. which they probably all had in common. Yeah, and it's it's been something that uh, Eyal Weizmann have been working on for quite some time now. With uh, this, um, I mean, uh, forensic architecture used to be the name of uh, uh, lectures that he, he he did in a in a few places. Uh, uh, that I also highly recommend to to look at, and um, and actually one of the one of the guests of Archip one of the past guests of Archipelago, Daniel Fernandez Pascual, is is part of this group, so we can uh, we can make the bridge with this conversation uh, 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 in Archipelago. Um, so as I said in the beginning of the conversation, I'd, I would like to finish uh, maybe uh, with an extra ten or fifteen minutes with. Uh, with what you're currently doing, which is um, co-teaching a studio at Columbia University uh, uh, School of Architecture, and uh, 
you've been uh, you've been kind enough to invite me in one of the juries, so I was I was able <laughs> yeah, to <that's> <laughs> <laughs> I was I was able to see that uh, uh, how incredibly crucial and important uh, what's being done in the studio uh, uh, is within uh, the frame of. Uh, architectural academia that sometimes is uh, let's say it is a little bit disappointing so uh, it's it's great to see such a such an interesting work that's being done uh, you're doing it in association uh, 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 remotely uh, re- re- remote remote uh, geographically speaking but uh, in association with our common friend uh, Nora Akawi yes that's right and uh, if I if I just uh, talk about it in one sentence. It's about this. It's about this um, Palestinian village that got evacuated uh, in 1949 during the Nakba, uh, and that's situated in uh, West Jerusalem, so uh, on uh, on uh, Israeli territory, and where, if I understood correctly, there's uh, going to be a, a, a building development uh, made. Right. So the students are have to find ways to intervene within this context. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And, um, right, so I'm, yeah, I'm currently really excited to co-teach with, with Craig Connick, um, um, this um, studio, architecture studio at Columbia University, um, on the current state and possible futures of, of the Palestinian village uh, Lifta. And as you mentioned, um, Nora Akawi um, was really crucial to um, the organization um, um, of this studio, and mm-hmm. we also traveled with her um, to the. Nora is, is currently the director of Columbia Studio X in uh, in Amman in Jordan. Right, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, we are dealing with. Um, with Lifta, which is a historic Palestinian village um, located in, in West Jerusalem. And it has been uh, forcibly abandoned in 1948 um, during sustained Israeli attacks uh, in the Arab-Israeli war. And so by then uh, it had um, 3,000 inhabitants. They fled um, in '48 and were prevented to come back because the um, Amistis line, the green line, in '49 was drawn um, actually across Lifter lands, leaving um, part of the village, the main part of the village, including the built structures, um, on the Israeli side. So um, that meant that refugees couldn't um, couldn't return, even though they would only um, maybe be located really closely in East Jerusalem. Um, which by then b- uh, belonged to the Palestinian um, um, authorities. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there, there's also a lot of Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem as well, so it's, it's not even sure that if the Green Line would have integrated <laughs> the entire village, the, then right. the, the Palestinians could have been, been able to come back. Now, yeah. uh, are there refugees in, uh, only in the West Bank, also in Lebanon? Or? There are refugees. Um, so... Many are in East Jerusalem, okay. actually quite close to, to Lifta. Some of them still on Lifta lands, which is a kind of exceptional situation. Okay. Uh, many of them are in Ramallah, uh, in the West Bank, and uh, several of them went to um, Jordan. Many of them uh, are in Zarqa refugee camp, um, which is uh, close to Amman. 
and yeah um, so uh, it's it's a quite interesting situation especially because um, uh, it is located in West Jerusalem now the village and uh, even though um, Jerusalem got um, formally um, united um, in um, 67 and the Palestinian um, Jerusalemites got permanent residency and, and ID, Israeli ID cards, they were not allowed to um, uh, to demand um, claims of, of legal title uh, or to permanently resettle in the village. And this uh, holds, true, holds true for all um, Palestinian villages, uh, Palestinian uh, village refugees, uh, which are over 500, um, that they are not allowed to return. Um, and um, while most of the, the other villages were bulldozed and, and built, over, uh, or built over or um, bulldozed and uh, ruins would be um, covered by parks mm. or um, there would be Israeli residents uh, in the old structures by now. In Lifta, um, there are, uh, it's kind of a really unique case because several of the structures are still standing and they are, most of them are not occupied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's something we pr- should probably point out to people who are not necessarily familiar with the situation there. And I, I suppose we, like, I should have at some point an entire podcast dedicated to this topic. But after 1949, uh, uh, many of the Palestinian villages that were, or, or towns that were uh, situated um, uh, on what is considered Israeli territory got systematically, uh, I mean, apparently not all of them, but most of them got systematically uh, annihilated to the very last stone in, in some kind of uh, absolute denial of, of presence, of civilizational presence uh, on this territory, uh, which is, which is uh, unbelievably problematic and adds to adds to the to the displacement of population uh, an additional uh, gigantic uh, uh, problem obviously but in in that specific case uh, uh, there 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 are still structures that were part of this village before 1948 right mm-hmm. and as much i guess as this is um, a huge opportunity and and um it is obviously at some point now it also became an opportunity for the Israeli land administration and in 2006 they approved a development plan for LIFTA which um, would um, grant the Israeli government uh, or where I guess the Israeli government would grant legal ownership of the land um, to uh, Israeli investors, private investors, to develop an exclusive uh, Jewish settlement, uh, residential area there. And probably I should elaborate here a little bit to mm-hmm. say that um, um, the the um, Palestinian um, former village lands and 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 village houses and Palestinian former property um, in today's uh, Israel is has been designated in 49 I think um, as absentee property mm. uh, which uh, is um, uh, under 
the, so it, it's managed by the Israeli authorities. Um, and it's supposed to be um, kind of kept as absentee property, empty and, and safe until refugees would return, until, until the refugee question would be um, resolved. Um, however, there have been many instances now um, where um, the Israeli um, land administration um, sells the properties to private investors, which is highly problematic. Um, and so what is quite interesting here is that in 2012, um, in 2011, the refugees um, of Lifta and several activists formed uh, a coalition and they filed a petition to stop this development. And, and um, the, this act of, of, um, of um, selling um, the legal rights. And um, so in 2012, uh, I guess a precedent was made where the court ruled in favor of this petition. Um, was it the, the so Israeli Supreme Court? or? Um, it was, um, I'm not quite sure okay. which, it was an Israeli court, and yeah. I'm not sure if it was the Supreme okay, Court. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and so, so which, uh, of course, this was not the, um, uh, the final victory, um, because it just meant that um, uh, it... Uh, Kind of made uh, it, it. It created this kind of a phase where the t the tender had to be stopped, uh, and the Israeli Land Administration had to produce a survey of of the historical structures, mm -hmm. um, which, however, gave time to the lifter, the coalition to save lifter to come up with a plan, um, and. Yeah, and I guess this is where our studio comes in. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, maybe I should say that it's those questions are incredibly crucial because um, there, I, I suppose there, there would be a way to look at this, uh, at what's going on in Lifta. Uh, uh, that is, um, that would be saying that because it's on Israeli territory, uh, it. I mean, there, there's, there's a, there's a, a common, uh, a, a common look at the right of return of the refugee of Palestinian refugee right now, that is very much parasite, parasited by, by the idea that we're going more and more towards a, what, what's called like the two-state solutions, which is absolutely not where uh, people like Nora, you and I are coming from, and we are. Right. So the, the, the right the right to return in, in this kind of village is is uh, incredibly crucial in how uh, how the only uh, uh, future that that we want to to think about and fight for are are is is uh, the what we would call the one-state solution, but obviously the idea of solution is always extremely problematic. But so, so thinking of this kind of question within uh, the architectural academia, I think is is uh, incredibly uh, uh, an, in an incredibly interesting idea. So, 
um, yeah, the, stu the studio is not is still going on right now, so it's it's very right. very fresh, uh, very <laughs> fresh investigation. So please, right. yeah, we tell just us came a back bit. from a trip um, mm. where we did many interviews um, with different generations of of Liftawis and different different um, people uh, associated to this legal claim. Uh, it was incredibly interesting. I guess one of the most interesting things that I um, that we came across was probably to get to know about um, the coalition to save Lifter, mm -hmm. which is formed out of. Um, so this is the coalition that that filed the petition, right? And um, so it's formed out of Israeli and Palestinian um, individuals and groups um, for. Um, for achieving what, I guess, for Palestinian refugees would be only the first step. Their goal is to preserve and to stabilize um, the historic built fabric of Lifta. And um, so there are really different... Um, it's, it, to me, it's kind of really interesting, this, uh, this collaboration, um, because there's, there are so many um, goals, different goals at stake in, in, within one group, which is for the lifter refugees, the goal is to um, to maintain the historic um, and property rights um, to lifter and their right to return to the village in the future. For Israeli architects and planners involved, um, it is the preservation of the built heritage of, of lifter. And for several Israeli environmentalist groups, it is to um, maintain a green space for Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So their common goal um, is to prevent the current master plan to be implemented. And this um, is the broadest, really the broadest common denominator, because um, which also is the only way to enable this collaboration. Um, because they are all... Um, they all know that uh, when this first phase um, uh, is achieved or when, when they, they um, are able to stop the building development, they wouldn't be on the same page anymore necessarily because um, for Palestinian refugees, the second step would be to try to implement the right of return and to return to their village in one form or another. Um, and for... Um, for several um, Israeli NGOs that are now collaborating for the first steps for the different reasons I already told, mm -hmm. that um, that political um, motivation would not um, be what they want to fight for. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of fascinating for me, this almost crude strategic rationality, um, I guess by the part of also mainly Palestinian refugees, uh, to realize that this collaboration, even though they all have different end, end goals, that this collaboration is is one way, is, a, is probably a good way to achieve this this first um, stop of of the mm. the building development of the tenure, um, and um, it yeah, it is simply interesting to me to to see that happening in. Um, in a situation which probably is <laughs> where it's hard to find any rational argument um, politically, and 
also in a situation that, especially for Palestinian refugees, is so heavily loaded in terms of emotions and memories to make that rational cut, in a way. Mm-hmm. That's quite fascinating to me and a thing that I never experienced bef- in my um, former visits to um, Palestine and Israel. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I suppose just like uh, just like in your own uh, academic work that that took another that took a turn once you finished it and started it as a professional uh, within a more professional context, I suppose it'd be interesting to see if uh, any of the students uh, is is pushing pushing his or her own work uh, outside of, I mean, beyond the, beyond the let's, let's say, the comfortable limits of the, of the academia. So we, yeah, I think I, so. <laughs> yeah, I very much look forward to, to, see, to seeing the, the work they're doing. So, yeah. um, they're actually already thinking about applying for grants in order to be able to return and work in the summer. There you go. Well, yeah. that's, 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 that's great. Thank you so much, Nina. It was, uh, it was uh, very, very, very interesting. So. Thank you, too. <laughs> it was really great. Thanks.